You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. When was the last time you feared for your life? When was the last time you feared for your life? Uh, For me, it was in college. 2011, to be specific. Uh, It was a summer day, and my roommates and I decided to go swim up a river to a rope swing. Uh, We had eaten an inordinate amount of pizza right before we went to the river, Uh, but college-age Isaac didn't think that to be that big of a deal. I thought I was a good enough swimmer, but I was wrong. Uh, I don't know if it was my full stomach or my lack of swimming skills or some mix of the two, but either way, uh, this rope swing required a pretty decent swim, and this North Carolinian river was pretty deep after all, and I couldn't make it. And I started to go under to drown. Had my roommate, Dave, not swam over to me and saved me, I really don't know that I would be standing here preaching today. Friends, in our passage today, we see Jesus' closest followers fearing for their lives. Now, fearing that they too were going to drown. And I wonder if you can relate Maybe you feel like you're drowning in life. If not physically, then metaphorically. You feel overwhelmed with waves of depression, waves of financial hardship, waves of plain old life. And maybe you feel flooded by the consequences of your own bad decisions. Whatever it is, I pray that in looking at this passage tonight, who Jesus is would be bigger and more amazing to you than any wave of trouble that is overwhelming you. And I pray Jesus' identity and presence would calm your troubled soul and give you confidence that God will take care of you. Amen. Uh, typically at this point in the sermon, I give context for where we've been in Mark's gospel and how we got up to this point in the passage. But friends, today's passage uh, draws on so much context from the entire Bible that we'll get plenty of context simply as we walk through tonight's passage. So let's just dive into the text. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark four thirty-five. It's on page 788 of those Black Pew Bibles around you. Page 788. And if you're new to looking at the Bible, the big numbers of the chapter, the little numbers of the verses, Mark chapter 4, verse 35, God's word says. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm 
arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Let's pause there. Because this question is so honest. It's so relatable. It so naturally comes out of our mouths, especially in our hardships. Jesus, do you not care? And this will be our first question this evening. We're going to ask two simple questions of the text. Here's the first. Does Jesus care about me? Does Jesus care about me? Friend, Christian, ask yourself this evening what you know you've asked yourself before at some difficult point in your life. Maybe what you're asking yourself even now. Does Jesus care about me? Because if we're honest, if we look at the waves of trouble in our lives, the answer seems to be so obviously no. Does Jesus care about me? This is the first question. The foundational question in some sense. When it comes to strategies for helping people or sharing useful information with them, it's often said that nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. Friends, Jesus hasn't brought you here tonight simply to transfer knowledge to you, but rather to get at one of the deepest questions in your heart. Does Jesus care about me? Before we answer the question, let's just notice some basic things in our text. Doing this will help us better understand what's going on and whether God cares about it, about us. So far in Mark, we've seen Jesus at the center of controversy. There's been a lot of conversation and speech and parables, but in our text tonight, the action seems to pick up suddenly. Almost as sudden as this storm, which seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, Friends, over these last few weeks, Jesus has told four parables, right? The parable of the seed, the lamp, the seed growing, and the mustard seed. But our text tonight really starts a new section of Mark. Where we'll see Jesus do four mighty acts. And this account is the first of those. Now, I just talked about Jesus doing mighty acts, but what we just saw here was him sleeping, right? Verse 38, he was in the stern asleep. Has Jesus fallen asleep on the job? What good is a sleeping savior? Let's look at the text, starting from the beginning. Verse 35, look with me. On that day when evening had come, okay, so it's getting dark. Storms during the day are scary. Storms during the night are very scary. You might feel like things are dark in your life. But I think this detail is really given us to make clear that Jesus had been teaching all day. We've heard some of his parables, but he was teaching all day and he was done for the day. 
and I think this is worth noting, Jesus stopped working. He did not work all the time. Oh, we can think of Dustin's sermon on rest from a couple of weeks ago as we consider how Jesus left the crowd, verse 36 tells us. Uh, Jesus essentially says, that's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for coming. I've said what I've needed to say. Right, verse 33 tells us he was teaching the people as they were able to hear it. They're learning incrementally. And so Jesus says, we're done for the day. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So his disciples take him in their boat. A typical Galilean boat could hold up to 15 people. And so these men begin their nighttime sailing. And verse 37 says a great windstorm. Uh, Not just a windstorm, but a great windstorm arose. Friends, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, uh, which means there can be violent downdrafts and sudden storms. And this storm was bad. The rest of verse 37 says the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. The ship seems like it's about to sink. But Jesus, verse 38 was in the stern, the rear of the boat, asleep on the cushion. You have to love the eyewitness detail there. And by the way, this is the only time the Gospels mention Jesus sleeping. And it's during a storm. Who is this guy, Jesus? You just can't predict him. Now, on one level, friends, we can understand why Jesus was sleeping. Uh, Remember, he was Fully man, truly human. And he had been teaching all day. Any of you who've done public speaking know it's very exhausting. Just so you can grow in mercy for your pastor, studies show preaching a 30-minute sermon, not that I know what it's like to preach one of those, but studies show preaching a 30-minute sermon is equivalent to the energy spent in a full work day. So Jesus, the all-day teacher of parables, was Wiped, exhausted. But was that the only explanation for his sleep? I mean, sleeping during a storm. Perhaps Jesus, the tired man, was also Jesus, the confident man. The one who was so sure his heavenly father would take care of him that he could sleep during storms. Friends, was Jesus tired or was he brave? The answer is yes. But the disciples didn't have time to think about all that. After all, they thought they were going down. Now, friends, this must have been a terrifying storm if fishermen, dudes who were used to being on the seas, feared for their lives. So they wake Jesus up, verse 38 says, and ask him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Friends, they didn't ask Jesus, why weren't weren't you afraid? They didn't ask, can you calm the storm? No, the question was about Jesus' heart, his goodness. His person, do you not care about life, about our ministry, 
about us. Sisters and brothers, our trials can be terrifying. But if we're not careful, our trials can also be deceiving. Our trials can tell us God does not care about us. They'll tell us that he is against us or not with us. But Jesus was there in the boat with the disciples. But he's not awake. He's not paying attention. Jesus was there. But it sure seems like Jesus has fallen asleep at the wheel of my life. Jesus is there. Friends, a sleeping savior is not a dead savior. We might ask, what good is a sleeping savior? Answer, the same good that a sleeping parent is to a child who runs up in their bed. Friends, when a kid wants to sleep with a parent, usually they don't mind if their parent is asleep. It's the parent's simple presence that comforts the child to the point where the child can sleep. The child knows that mom or dad being here is enough. The child thinks almost subconsciously, if they're asleep, I can sleep. I don't need mom or dad to be, I don't need mom or dad awake to be safe. I just need them with me. Oh, someone tonight needs to hear that Jesus is still with you. Beloved, the presence of adversity in your life does not equate to the absence of God in your life. Let me say that again. The presence of adversity in your life does not equate to the absence of God in your life. Beloved, the presence of adversity in your life is not a sign that God does not care about you. He's in the boat with you. And he's not even asleep, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Beloved, the trouble was that the disciples' fear of perishing was greater than their confidence in Jesus' presence. And on one level, this makes sense. Everything was telling them, we're about to die and our teacher is indifferent. But didn't this teacher teach us last week with the mustard seed that faith does not judge things by outward appearances? even if those outward appearances are sinking your ship. Friends, let's be clear. God does not delight in suffering. Parents, aunts, uncles, none of you delight in the suffering of your children, nieces, and nephews. Grandparents, none of you delight in the suffering of your, grand, your grandbabies. And one main reason for that is because you're made in God's image. You're like him. And if sinful you grieves the suffering of others, how much more 
does God grieve it? God does not delight in suffering, but he does use it to build our trust in him, to give us greater understanding of him. You see, difficulty has a way of revealing and testing what it is we actually believe. After all, at the beginning of our passage, when the waters were calm, the disciples had no problem trusting Jesus. Do you notice this? He says, let's go to the other side, and in dutiful obedience, they're like, sure, sounds great. We'll get the sail ready, Jesus. And they pull out of the dock, presumably without a word, trusting their teacher. And sidebar, I think it's so useful to note that the disciples did what Jesus told them to do, and the storm still came. He says, put out to shore, they do it, and the storm still came. Sisters and brothers, there's something in all of us that assumes if I do what God says, then life won't be hard. It'll go my way. We have a category for if I don't obey God, things won't go well. Right, Jonah, when he's disobeying God, a great storm comes upon him. But so long as I'm not like Jonah, so long as I obey, the storm won't come for me, we think. Which is why it perplexes us to the depths of our soul when we do exactly what God says to do and life still gets really hard. The waters still rise. Ah, but it's when the waters rise that what we really believe is put on display. Oh, anybody can trust God when there's a feast. But will we trust him when there's a famine? Anybody can trust God when there's peace. Will we trust him when there's storms? Will Jesus be enough? when there's storms. Friends, these disciples are learning more about Jesus. Jesus was teaching the crowds, yes, and he's also teaching the disciples lessons. You never graduate from being Jesus' disciple. He's teaching them lessons, lessons they can only learn in the school of suffering. Beloved, the storm was a school. One that would teach these disciples that hardship is not necessarily a sign that you are disobeying God's will. In fact, it might be a sign that you're right in the center of it. God has put you in the eye of the hurricane and he intends to teach you exactly who he is. Which is what the disciples are about to learn. And the lesson about Jesus' identity is not disconnected from the disciples' question about whether he cares for them. Friends, the answer to our question, does God care about me, is wrapped up and proven in the person of Jesus. In other words, when you understand who Jesus is, what he can do and has done, there will be no question about whether God cares for you. So our first question was, does God care about me? Based off the disciples' question in verse 38, let's keep reading. Verse 39, and Jesus 
awoke. So the storm comes and the disciples wake Jesus up and rebuke him for obviously not caring about them given this flood. And verse 39, Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still and the wind ceased. <laughs> Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still and the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Jesus said to them, the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, we're going to take our next question yet again from the disciples' lips. Question number two, who is Jesus? Question number two, who is Jesus? Who then is this? Who is this guy? Beloved, as your bulletin says under teaching, the sermon series in Mark has been entitled, Who is Jesus? Not because, oh, that's super creative, but because that question is Mark's burden throughout his gospel. Oh, from the first line of his gospel, he has been concerned that you understand Jesus' identity. Who he is. And Mark has been concerned with that because the Bible is concerned with Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the star of the show. The main event. I don't care who's on stage during the Super Bowl halftime show because Jesus is the one all these promises and pages are pointing to. The one before whom all the universe bows. The one who the waves and the winds obey. Amen? Amen. Friends, who is Jesus? This is the question. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the question I pray is the rock in your shoe the one to devote yourself to answering. Who is Jesus? This is the question from the beginning of scripture. Right after mankind is tempted and rebels against God, God responds in faithfulness by promising that from the seed of the woman, again, sounds like the parable last week, from the seed of the woman will arise one who will defeat the tempter and enemy of God's people. Those words written in Genesis 3.15 aren't written so much to answer the question about who that seed is, but to raise it. Who is he? This is the question echoed throughout the Bible. In Genesis, right before God floods the earth, when Noah is born, people are asking, is this the one God promised? Who is this child? Who is he? In Proverbs 30, we find these questions. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Ooh, curious question. Who is he? And to answer this question in scripture, God so often takes us to the waters. To the storms. See, y'all thought this was a sermon about y'all's hard circumstances. And as we have gone to great lengths to show, God cares about your circumstances. But this text, just like this book, just like this church, 
just like this world, in this universe is first and foremost about God. Beloved, take your eyes off yourself, off your problems, and behold your God. Who from the first two verses of the Bible hovered over the waters, which he divided to allow dry land for mankind to live on. Your God who from Genesis chapter 6 stopped the flood he sent upon the earth. Your God who in Exodus 14 told the Red Sea to split and it split and he delivered his people. Psalm 106 says God rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. Friends, this is your God who sent the storm on Jonah and who saved his exiled people as they had trouble traveling the seas. How does Psalm 107 describe it? They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. That's Psalm 107, 28 to 30. Friends, time forbids me to quote how Job and Isaiah and Zechariah talk about God being sovereign over the waters. The point is this. Israel the nation where Jesus' disciples came from, their scriptures are emphatic that God alone controls the seas. Often in the Old Testament, the sea is a representation of hostility against God's people, and it's a threat to God's people. A threat only God can conquer as he delivers his people. In silencing the raging sea, Jesus was showing that he could do what only God was known to do. He could silence the seas. What does that mean? Who is he? Beloved, in flexing the muscles, only God can flex. Jesus was showing his disciples in their greatest hour of distress who he was and who he is, and he is God. Truly man, yes, no doubt, we talked about that. But you better bet your bottom dollar. Jesus, the one who speaks to the sea and it responds like an obedient child, is truly God. Beloved, as one commentator said, in the Law and the Prophets, another term for the Old Testament, God is seen as controller of the natural world and natural phenomena which means when you see someone control the natural world and natural phenomena, when you see someone exercise lordship over all creation, what you are seeing, who you are seeing is God. We are all witnesses tonight, beloved. Friends, though this, through this miracle, through this exercising authority, Jesus is confirming his identity. In our earlier sermons in Mark, we talked about this. Jesus would heal so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, to do what God does, because he is God, the God who creates a universe and sustains it with the power of his word. Who is Jesus? Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power power by the word of his power friends you realize Jesus stilled the sea just by speaking 
He didn't wrestle with the water, didn't offer it a sacrifice. He just spoke to it. That is divine authority. And it scared the living daylights out of the disciples. We'll look at their newfound fear in a moment. But we should look at Jesus' question to them first. Verse 40, look at, look at it again with me. Jesus calms the sea and said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Friends, this is a rebuke, just to be clear. Sometimes I'm tempted to think, oh, Jesus would never say a hard word because he's loving. But no, it's precisely because he's loving that Jesus sometimes says a hard word. Friends, sometimes we need to be rebuked. Beloved, if a fellow church member rebukes you, don't get defensive and say, how could you say that to me? Don't you judge me. Iron City Church, I don't want to hear about any church members being like that. If that's how you respond to correction, all you're guaranteeing is that people will stop telling you the truth. You need to be rebuked sometimes. So do I. And let's be clear, Jesus isn't just a meanie rebuking people. Remember, a verse earlier, he saved their lives. Though they were rebuking him, questioning him, doubting him, like, do you care about us? He's like, guys, I came voluntarily from heaven, lived on this ratchet earth, y'all ruined, taught you parables all day. I'm a little tired, but y'all don't think I care about you. Okay, cool. More seriously, beloved. Notice that before Jesus even rebuked his disciples, he responded to their faithlessness with faithfulness. He served them. Despite their franticness, he bears with them and calms the sea. But when all is calm, Jesus does also challenge them with a couple questions. Why are you so afraid, he asks. Have you still no faith? Now, friends, I know this rebuke may land especially hard on those of us who struggle with doubt. And to be clear, I think that's lots of us. I've struggled with doubt before. And for those of us who do, I want to make clear what some sisters at Sermon Read last night made clear to me. That though Jesus rebukes the disciples, he doesn't give up on the disciples. He doesn't disown them. So if you're here thinking, I struggle with doubt like Jesus' disciples, so there's not a a place for me in this church or in God's kingdom. No, 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 don't think that. Because after all, if a church's members had to be perfect, none of us would have a place here. Friend, if you're struggling with doubt, talk to one of the elders. Listen to my overview sermon on Job on the church website. Remember that Jesus, the very Jesus who himself would one day cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This Jesus sympathizes with his disciples. He remains with them. His presence is still with them. And out of love for them, he does also challenge them to grow in their trust of him. Our doubt does not exempt us from that challenge. 
You see, though the disciples were still learning about him, Jesus is saying, y'all have seen enough to know that even if storms came, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you and lead you beside still waters. You're good. You're with me. You're safe. And the same is true for you, beloved ICC member. You too have seen enough of God's faithfulness that you ought to believe in him, to have faith in him. Why are you so afraid? Jesus asks, have you still no faith? Friends, fear and faith are mutually exclusive. And the way to drive out fear is to increase your faith. And to increase your faith, you must feed your faith God's word, you must go through hard things, your own storms. Friends, when we, see how God, when we see how God was faithful in the past, time and time again, it gives us confidence that he'll be faithful in the future, time and time again. And so don't despise God for the hard things he's sending your way. Now remember how he brought you through them. It will build your faith. This is why we can count it all joy when we meet trials or storms of various kinds like James talks about because it strengthens our faith when we see how God has delivered us in the past. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, when God brought him through a terrible storm which shipwrecked him, literally, Paul says God has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Again. So to build your faith and lessen your fear, you gotta meditate on God's word. You gotta go through hard things. And one more thing, you gotta pray. That's what Martin Luther said, to be a good student of God's word, those three disciplines, reading, meditating, suffering, and prayer. Pray, ask God to increase your faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We'll see that prayer in Mark 9. But we are still in Mark 4. And the freshly rescued and rebuked disciples are still learning who Jesus is. They're still learning that their teacher is not just a teacher. He's God. And the sight of him terrifies them. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, Friends, as we study these mighty acts of Jesus these next few weeks, what we'll see is that each one ends with fear and amazement at who Jesus is. Earlier I said faith drives out fear. But there is a type of fear that faith engenders, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord will drive out all other fears of things we might be tempted to judge and fear because of their outward appearance. But when we fear the Lord, more and more, not even appearances scare us. Y'all remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How they were confident God would save them from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar, they said, we refuse to sin against God, the God we fear. Friends, what can give someone that kind of confidence in God? That whether by 
death or by life, he will take care of them and do them right. What can give someone the confidence to say, as we said in Sawyer's sermon, that our only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What can do that? Only faith in and faith that is built by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The son of God, as Mark said in the first verse of his gospel. Friends, Jesus is God's only son. His beloved son. Watch this because this is how the identity and work of Jesus will answer the question about whether God cares about you. After all, we were talking a moment ago about confidence in God, a faith-filled bravery. But if we're honest, we know our own weakness. Sometimes we still get so scared that God doesn't even care about us or love us. And in that fear, we can do some really tragic and destructive things. We run to other things. Sinful things for safety, for comfort, things that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others. Friends, all of us have rebelled against God. The great crime of humanity is not that God has not cared about us, but that we have not cared about him. We have not trusted him. We have instead drowned ourselves in pleasures and in sin and in brokenness to find satisfaction and security or comfort or control. Instead of crying out to God in our storms, we tried to be God and wound up drowning in the sea of our sin and of God's judgment we rightly deserve for our sins. But God... But God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what he gave, John 3, 16 says. In love, his precious son, his one and only son. Do you see, if that's who God gave for you, his very best, his very heart, his own son, if that's who God gave for you, how can we question whether he loves us? He has given Jesus, who is the best, who is blameless and holy, who, who is God himself. The Father gave him for us, and he gave him to the point of death. Friends, on the cross, Jesus died the death we deserve for our sins. He hung on that Roman tree in weakness. I love that Jesus is asleep in our text tonight. He's in a position of relative weakness because that is how he saves. 2 Corinthians 13 says he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God for we are also weak in him and so we live with him by the power of God. Friends, though Jesus was crucified in weakness, three days later he got up by the power of God. And to be crystal clear, I'm talking about the resurrection, y'all. Yes, Jesus was asleep in our text, but he got up. And yes, Jesus was dead in the gospel. But on the third day, he got up silencing the storms of God's judgment. 
and bringing calm into the souls of all troubled sinners who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Jesus, the one who was given as a substitute for us. Friends, that's who Jesus is. The storm silencer. The one who calms the seas with a word. The one who is worthy of all our trust. The one whose presence is enough. Even when he sleeps. And he doesn't even sleep anymore. Beloved, he is the only son of God who died in the place of sinners. And if that is who he is. And God gave that person, Jesus, for us. We can rest confident that God cares for us. One of my favorite Christian rap lines says, with so much evil in the world, how can we believe you're good? But I finally understood when I saw that man nailed to wood. Sisters and brothers, don't judge whether God cares for you by your storms, by your circumstances. Faith like that is feeble because it's built on instability. There's a reason the scriptures talk about weak faith being tossed to and fro by the waves. Friends, if your faith is built on circumstances, every time the waves change, you have a crisis. Does God care about me? No, don't base God's care for you on your circumstances. Base it on Christ, who never changes, who died for you. Friends, if Jesus is who scripture says he is and God gave him for us, then we have yet to begin to understand how much God cares about us. If Jesus is who he says he is and God gave us him, we don't ever have to wonder, does God love us? We don't have to wonder or worry about anything. I can't improve on how scripture says it in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Oh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or storms? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me finish by saying this. Friends, in this text, we have two options held out to us. In light of who Jesus is, we can choose faith or ungodly fear. And we are not the first ones presented with this choice. When Israel was brought safely through the waters, just as we'll see when we have baptisms in a couple weeks, 
When Israel was brought safely through the waters, Exodus 14 tells us, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, godly fear of the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. Friends, Mark, God is putting the question before you tonight. Will you be afraid of your circumstances and doubt God's love toward you? Or will you fear him only and believe in Jesus, the Lord over creation, the son of God given for you in love? You have to make the choice tonight on how you'll respond. And I pray God would help all our unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, give us all grace to choose Jesus. Your only son, our Lord. Who silences storms and gives us peace. In his name. We receive life and rest and joy and peace.